Tonight's talk is about the power of concentration and how that affects our ability to allow the universe to touch us more and more deeply. And I just wanted to acknowledge that it's the full moon and we're very close to the solstice uh, so that there's a lot of um, light and power. Uh, it's a great way to, um, and an auspicious way to begin a retreat. Uh, it's a similar light that's in us all, and it's uh, the light that we're developing in this power of concentration. Recently, I was remembering that the uh, word goodbye uh, means God be with you. And sometimes we um, lose um, our connection to our own language. And it's interesting that um, what I'm trying to say in this talk is about that this light or metta, the power of loving kindness, is really within us all. As we begin this practice, I think sometimes it's not easy to see how the power of the concentration does uh, pull us together and glue us together and allows us to hold ourselves and others, as I was talking about last night. So tonight I'd like to talk about um, the way that the concentration uh, does help us break down the barriers between ourself and ourself, ourself and others. The Buddha first taught loving-kindness as a guardian practice, as a protection. Uh, and concentration means that we feel perfectly put together. It's a way that we rest our heart. When concentration is happening, there's an ease of well-being. And this rest of the heart, meaning that we're not caught or oppressed by anything that's happening, um, allows for a great strengthening or power to happen in the mind. When we say the phrase, may I or may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, one aspect of this is um, meaning that we have this power of concentration, that we're protected that we're not vulnerable to the endless chatter or thoughts that are going through the mind. So a scattered or disturbed mind is a vulnerable mind, and it's easily caught in what's appearing. A mind that's perfectly put together is imperturbable. It's still, and that stillness is healing. The other thing I wanted to talk about tonight, besides um, how the concentration practice uh, works, is also to just remind us all that we don't make interconnectedness happen when we do this practice. It's like it's already there. The truth of interconnectedness 
is always there. And it's through the uh, practice of wishing ourselves well and others well that we touch into this truth in the metta practice. So first I'd like to talk very simply about, um, it's pretty much the mechanics of how this practice works. Um, There are four aspects that have to come together um, when we're doing the concentration. And at the beginning of the retreat, it will feel like we get a piece, or we get another piece, but we don't always feel perfectly put together. So for example, um, the first aspect is that we have to be able to say the phrase. Yeah. You can tell when you're really tired. You can't even remember, may I be happy. I, I did this practice uh, for many months, you know, and then <laughs> did it again for many months. And there were times when I would write the phrases on my hand because I would forget them. And it would just be amazing to me that after a month of practicing, I'd be so tired sometimes. I'd, I'd go, May. <laughs> you know, and it's just, you, you know, that's not when you're concentrated, right? You don't feel perfectly put together when you're nodding out. It's low energy, low, low concentration. So the ability to say a phrase takes a certain amount of energy and takes a certain amount of concentration. And that, that's an accomplishment. You can see the difference when you can't do that and when you can. The next aspect is understanding that phrase. As I mentioned this morning, you can say, may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. But if there's, again, not enough energy, not enough light in the mind, not enough concentration, it doesn't mean anything. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, one uh, has to judge that. It's like to be able to say a phrase is huge. Because if you look at the normal human scattered mind, it doesn't usually have a phrase, may you be happy in it. And so just to be able to say a phrase is wonderful. And then to mean it, to understand it, is huge. And usually when we understand the phrase, there's interest. And they'll be, they'll, it'll move from a kind of dryness. When we just can say a phrase without the meaning, it's kind of dry, and we'll tend to judge it. When there's understanding, you'll feel like you're, you're starting to get more um, concentrated, more connected, more immersed in the loving-kindness. The third aspect of this is connecting that phrase with something. You know, you can, and this is what I mean, you'll feel like you have a piece. You say the phrase, you mean it, but you can't quite connect it with an image or the feeling sense of someone. And try to be patient with this because there's a lot developing as we do this uh, and just try to be where you are with it. But that ability to connect the phrase, the meaning with some being or something is how it will start to feel more glued together, more connected. And the fourth aspect is that sometimes, not all the time, there'll be an experience of loving-kindness. And be careful of having some sort of anticipation of what that might feel like, because sometimes it'll feel just very quiet. 
just very tranquil and restful. And other times it might feel very joyful. Sometimes somebody might cry because it'll feel like, you know, we don't get to experience that purity of love that much in our life, and there'll be a kind of mixture of relief and grief and happiness all all together. I've known people who've done this practice for a month, and they don't get that fourth part. And that's okay. It's like they just, you know, there's all different ways that this practice can happen for somebody. Sometimes um, this ability to connect the attention with the phrase and to mean it is called aiming and connecting. And I'd like to um, go at that from a different angle later in the talk. But for, for now, just to remember that it's, it takes a certain amount of energy and concentration to do this and not to expect that on the first night of the retreat that you've got it down and it's going to stay perfectly <laughs> concentrated and together the whole retreat. You'll have the ups and downs with it, and that's determined by energy. So the more energy you have, the more there'll be the ability to concentrate. When those four aspects, or even two or three, come together, there will be a feeling of being more immersed And this is very healing and purifying. When when that's very deep, there'll be a sense that there's no more giver and receiver, even within oneself to oneself, or oneself to another. And this is love. This is what's meant by unconditional love. And it's called breaking down the barrier. The truth is that we're not separate from ourself, the attention that we say is a, a separate from ourself with ourself is really that lack of concentration, basically, and ourself with another. When we have that depth of feeling of connection with the metta practice, it won't feel like you're reaching out to someone with the metta you know, or you know, sending it over there, it'll feel more like um, the person or being is inside one's heart. And this doesn't mean that if you're feeling like you're sending it over there, at that time in practice, that's fine. It's wonderful. It just means that the concentration isn't as deep. It'll feel uh, like duality is present. Duality's fine. So it's important to be able to um, appreciate all the different ways that a day of this practice goes, from a place where you're actually nodding and sleeping. And it's, it can be easy to judge that, or you could s- sit there nodding out going, hmm, may I be happy. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be you know, uh, a place of judgment. It can be a place of loving-kindness. Unconditional love means that we love ourselves no matter what. 
if we were designing this retreat for just a peak experience, uh, you wouldn't be here all day. <laughs> you know, you'd be here for a little bit of the day. Uh, and in the way that loving kindness truly develops is that if you give yourself a whole day, you'll see that you are challenged to feel the loving kindness, whether you're having that peak experience when the duality breaks down and there's no more giver or receiver, and when one's restless and wants to run out of here screaming and never come back. <laughs> you know, there's just this range of experience. And can we um, show up to these experiences with more love for ourselves? This is a a poem by David White called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. Have you come here to be sure that you're not beyond love? There are times when we think that. One of the ways that um, the Buddha described coming beyond love is in this metaphor of the mother cow and the newborn calf. And I wanted to um, go over that a little bit again because um, I think it's a really useful description of concentration, actually whether we're doing the mindfulness practice or the loving-kindness practice. So we know, for those of you who came in this morning um, and are new, um, the Buddha described this experience of unconditional love as when a mother cow looks at her newborn calf. This can be a father cow. It's, it's like this feeling of connecting with something newborn, whether it's a mother bird with a baby bird. You know, this is the idea. Uh, and I think that it's important to contemplate the labor it takes for a mother cow. I mean, this is a big calf, right? And it's a lot of labor. It, it's not um, an easy thing to give birth. The idea is that we're wishing well this being without attachment to result. And this is critical. And you'll find as you do this practice that many, many times it'll be conditional. Many, many times we are attached to the result. That's okay. You get to purify the motivation by seeing when the motivation isn't pure. So even though there's such a range of joy and sorrow in this world, especially for cows, you know, this newborn moment means that there's this pure wish 
And this is love with understanding. If there's an attachment to the result of the wish, that's love without understanding. Understanding means that we can't control the result of the wish. That's pure love. That's true love. When we love without attachment to the result of the wish. And this isn't so easy for us. All beings who take birth in the world will face impermanence and change and mortality. So we face this um, preciousness of birth. We face this aching uh, beauty of incarnation. But it's also fleeting, and we all know (laughs) how um, we can't control life and love. I wasn't raised on a farm, and um, in my era, um, there was a lot of conditioning to think that animals didn't really have feelings. And I think that that's still the case a lot, that somehow um, they don't rate as much in terms of the feeling um, world. There was a point in my life where I moved to northern Maine to homestead, and uh, some of my family and friends were there with me. And we decided to get a cow. None of us had experience with farming and nature uh, in that way. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, we divided up the labor. I had bees, and this other friend had the cow. And then, you know, the cow got pregnant, and we had the cow had a baby, and the cow's name was April, the mother cow, and the baby was named Coco. And then we had all this milk, just tons of milk that, you know, we were making quiche and cheese and cottage cheese, and then we started giving away the milk to neighbors, and, you know, it was just, we just had no idea what to do with all this milk and cream. We were making butter, uh, and it was too much, you know, we just couldn't deal with it, so it came to pass that the group decided um, that we we had to give the baby away. And this was a huge decision. It was very difficult, um, but none of us were prepared for what happened. So I think we decided, I think we waited a year before we gave Coco away. Um, and April cried and cried and cried and cried, months after month after month. I mean, it was just, she wouldn't stop crying for about six months. And we were just devastated. I mean, we just, we had no idea that that would happen. You know, this is how powerful that bond is. This is how important it is in this world, and how attached we do get. Um, It's not just the human world. Um, it was a huge lesson for all of us in terms of um, undertaking, being connected to the planet, and learning about how we get our food, and um, what life is really all about. One of the most powerful teachings I've ever experienced. Well, what I'm um, putting out in this talk is that our attention 
when it wanders is um, the loss of the mother cow. So we have a baby calf in us, and we have a mother cow. And when we're not concentrated, those are disconnected. So we have a pure witness. You know how a lot of us know about non-duality and that the attention can be seen as pure witness, yeah? And then what does it connect with? Well, when the mother cow and the calf come together, that's an experience of being concentrated. Whether you're with a breath, the attention, the mother cow connects with the breath. Yeah, that's um, the calf. You don't feel separate at that moment from the, calf, from the mother cow calf or the attention with the breath or a sound. It's the same thing with metta. So the most important thing for you to remember out of what I'm trying to say, because it you know, it's easy to lose this because it's profound in a way, is that you are the mother cow and you are the baby calf, or you are the father cow and the baby calf. And what we're doing in this practice is bringing them together and bringing them together over and over again. That's how we establish trust. That's how we repair trust in ourselves. That's how we repair trust in others. That's how we repair trust in the universe. In terms of repairing trust in ourselves, what we learn as we move from child to adult is that we don't have to be so dependent on another to hold the preciousness of ourselves, to hold the inner beauty that's there, the light that's inside. Uh, And the metta practice is such a grace. I mean, it's just like a total grace and a gift Uh, that we can learn to be that for ourselves. You know, that the Buddha taught this practice and that we can learn it and practice it is such an amazing gift. You know, it can heal a planet, it can heal a culture, it can heal a human being. So we might yearn for someone else to wish us well. <laughs> you know how much we do that. We want. And when I did the metta practice for the first time, when I was wishing others well, so much of the time I would see that I was wanting the metta from them more than I was really <laughs> wanting <laughs> to give it. And those times when the concentration came together and I could feel that duality break down, oh, Pure love feels wonderful. That wanting love is so different than the experience of this pure love. It's worth it. It's worth going through every day of doing this. Even if you get these glimpses of it, it's an incredible thing to learn. And I have to say that I felt like um, this was such a difficult practice for me, much more difficult than the Vipassana practice. And I, I really honestly want to say that if I, can, if I can do this practice, anybody can. You know, I genuinely, um, doing metta for myself was the hardest thing I ever did in meditation practice.
the longing, the longing for love isn't the love. But I found that if we kill the longing in us, we'll feel dead. You know, so how much of our life have we spent trying to kill this yearning or longing inside? But if we expect others to fulfill it, or if we cling to others, and we try to control it, that doesn't work. We suffer. And I think that when we do this practice and it deepens in us, we see that pole where we go from where we really long for it. And if we don't allow that, we'll feel numb or dead. But if we go through that, (laughs) there'll be times when we (laughs) swing over to the other pole and we're clinging and holding on. And that is so much pain. You know, and that's what we tend to do as humans if we don't learn what this is, this unconditional love. This is a um, haiku by the uh, Japanese poet Basho. He said, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. That's amazing. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. So does this mean that we don't connect with ourselves and others because life is impermanent? Does that mean that we just go numb and detach and don't feel anything? Or are we willing to have the courage to be willing to connect knowing that at some point it will pass and knowing that that's how life is? But being alive is worth that process. It's a very interesting question. And I think that it requires a kind of discernment uh, to see the difference between love and clinging. And one of the places I've gotten to see this uh, a lot is with um, my sister's children. I started raising them when I was about 11, helping raise them. Um, And it was very poignant, these relationships with these uh, children, because I was so um, young. And I'm trying to reconnect with them in a different way uh, at this point in time. And when I go visit them, there are times when I'll feel this fullness in my heart in being with them. You know, just, you know when you're really connecting with someone. It doesn't have to be a child, but when there's that love, there's that connection, and it will feel full. And then I'll be driving away, and it'll feel full, (laughs) but it'll start to hurt. You know the difference? Uh, Most of us, I think, will um, mix up that experience of when it starts to hurt with love. And that's, it's different. One is just the pure connection. 
and the other is missing it, clinging to it. Um, And that hurts. It doesn't mean that we don't do that as human beings, and it doesn't make it wrong, and we allow it. In this practice, what I've found so liberating is that instead of trying to even kill that or make that wrong or to make it go away, that it's allowed me to feel that even more deeply. That of course, of course if you connect somewhere, you'll miss it (laughs) if it's gone. Um, My very, very favorite bird, you know, just this this sound that um, Thoreau called the wood thrush, the emblem of his heart. And there's this bird in spring in uh, Massachusetts called the wood thrush. And every year, I just, I look forward to it for months. It's this most beautiful, pure sound. If you've heard it, I hope uh, some of you have heard it, you know what I mean. Uh, But just imagine any music you really love or any sound you really love. and this year, <laughs> I've, only, I've only gotten to hear it once. You know, I've been so busy, and um, I guess they're getting, you know, their habitat is starting to disappear. Uh, and I have to bike ride, really, to me, kind of out of the way to find this bird. And now, just because it's getting more difficult, and just because it only happens once a year, does that mean I shouldn't try to connect with it? and appreciate it, and love it, and then it goes. It's a powerful um, practice. So how do we do this? How do we bring a witnessing attention, which I'm saying is the mother cow, to a specific part of the universe? the baby cow. Say fear is happening, and you can't keep the metta going. Um, What needs to happen? You know, what is it that we need and want? What What we need and want is me. We need something to show up to connect to something. And it's only that we haven't learned how to do that, that this seems a little challenging. Uh, But you know how to do it. You do it with a sound. When you connect your attention to a sound, very purely, that's the attention connecting with something that's happening in the moment. And you can learn to do that with everything. And what's very interesting is that when you say a phrase, may I be happy, this is doing that. You're taking one part of the attention and connecting it with a phrase rather than a sound. Are you following this? You know, this is, this is what we're doing. This is becoming um, more and more connected to yourself, to others, to the universe. I think that a lot of us who have practiced metta for a while see that there's a certain composure and dignity that starts to appear in our lives as we learn to hold ourselves through the joys and sorrows of life, through the metta practice.
I had an experience in Honolulu this winter which was very inspiring to me. Uh, and I went for a walk at a time of day that I don't usually go, which is, I'm not um, a before dawn type of uh, person. <laughs> I'm not an early morning person. And I went for a walk. Um, I forget why I was up. Uh, and there's two little parks uh, that are, um, happen on the way that I uh, walk up the hill from where I live. And there was an old car with two old men in it, driving around, kind of in the early morning light. And I noticed them stop at one park, kind of far ahead of me. And by the time I got up there, they left. So I walked up to the next place, and they were there. I kind of didn't want to be intrusive, so I walked away and was hanging out a bit. And then I noticed that they were watching me. And I went over, um, and they started talking me a bit. And then I could see that they trusted me a little more. And I said, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're feeding the birds. And we go around to different parks, and um, we have this bird seed in the back of our station wagon, and we feed the birds. And I said, oh. And then, it, you know, they, they seemed very shy about sharing this because it was so sacred to them. Uh, so I just stood there for a while, and then all they said was, um, these birds are our family. And it was so beautiful. It was like, this is what they do every morning, and this is how they feel connected. And I know for myself, it's like when I go through a metta retreat and it gets hard or you know, it feels like it's getting dry, I just go outside. And you know, IMS is so far out because you know, the chipmunks you know, if you, you can't get too down on yourself and too serious if you watch a chipmunk, you know, or see a chipmunk. I mean, they're, they're pretty um, lighthearted. You know, if you get kind of tight, just go sit by a chipmunk for a while or feed a chipmunk or go out and look at the peonies, you know, out there opening or, you know, just open up and let the universe touch you in that way. That's a way to feel light concentration and to feel like you come together. All of this is about that feeling of being touched and coming together, holding, touch, coming together, holding. This is by Rumi, Birdsong, Wind, The Water's Face, each flower, remembering the smell, I know you're close by. So the other day I was um, watching my great niece painting, and it was a great painting. Um, it was really good. So I said it was beautiful, and a little while later, she looked at me, you know, she's four, and she said, you know, I really love myself. <laughs> it was great, you know, and my, my niece, you know, she was just like shocked. We were both just, you know, if somebody says that, isn't it, it's like, 
We're not allowed to do it, right? You know, it's just, why can't we say that? You know, I really love myself. You know, look at us. You know, it's not socially acceptable. <laughs> but then the next day, we were playing hide-and-seek, and she's very attached to me, and, you know, I was trying to play with her brother and include him, and, you know, she just hates that. Uh, and she, she put up with it for a while, and then she made a big stink, and I was upset at her, and um, it was a bad moment. And she, she threw herself on the bed, and she said, you know how we can be. I hate myself. I hate myself more than you'll ever know. You know, and she threw herself in the covers and, you know, was sobbing and, you know, it was like, one moment, you know, I really love myself. <laughs> and then, you know how easily we go into, oh, I hate myself more than anybody on the planet. I shouldn't even exist. You know, we just get so dark. And it can be within a few minutes. How do we work with that? Well, being able to remember that there's this pure witness that can be loving, that is much bigger than us, and that we can bring in and pull it together with ourselves, whether it's our heart, whether it's with our breath, our body. There's always that chance to heal the disconnect and to really know what we know. And sometimes it's knowing what we know, meaning that we know there's self-hatred present, and then it's knowing something deeper, which is that there is something deeper. Yeah, and this is such, this is inner beauty. You know, there's all kinds of outer adornment and outer beauty, but inner beauty is this ability to find this love that's there. And I find that as I, I learn how to do this with myself, I'm so much more able to do it with others. You know, so again, this isn't something that you just do with yourself for a week here and you leave and it's not applicable. Every time you do this with yourself, you're going to be interested in someone else at some point in time in the same way. Some of you were here last year when um, my dad was dying in the hospital and died. And someone here, when things were pretty difficult for me, um, ran out and gave me a meta tape, <coughs> a chant of the nuns uh, chanting. And my family um, lives, well, my father lived an hour and 10 minutes from here and never came here. And I've been coming here since 1977. <laughs> you know, so he wasn't very interested in Buddhism <laughs> or this practice. He's very local, um, narrow. Uh, and he was terrified of dying. You know, just, just was not his thing. And he wasn't really prepared for this event. Uh, and <laughs> my family's kind of funny. It was kind of a big scene at the hospital just as he was dying. My older sister, um, every night, was bringing in kind of big things of wine and getting pretty, very drunk. Um, so there was a big scene with her getting drunk uh, just before my dad died. And then she did her thing. 
And then my um, fundamentalist Christian niece started uh, in on my dad after that. Like there was the great <laughs> one scene. It was great. Actually, I was really enjoying this. You know, it was like the grand finale, you know, of my family. So <laughs> there's the, the big drama of the, the uh, drinking. And then my niece uh, tried to talk my father into um, going toward the light. And you know, my father was pretty tired at this point from my, my sister, and it was so funny. So she's standing there holding his hand, and this would be kind of nice in a normal family, you know, with a relatively normal dad. But my, and so my dad's waiting. I could feel it building and building and building, and finally he said, "I don't want to go toward the goddamn light." <laughs> <laughs> it was great, you know. Well, well, I, I said, why don't you guys go down and have some, you know, coffee cake or something? And I said, I'll stay with them for a while, you know, and I let them calm down. And, I, you know, it was very close to the end. Um, and I was playing Frank Sinatra for some days because he loved Frank Sinatra. Um, but then I had total control, right? You know, everybody was gone, and I put the loving-kindness chant on. And it was so powerful. It was like, um, for the first time ever, I saw my dad's body start to relax. Um, and, it, you know, I said, Dad, this isn't about, you know, just pretend it's angels singing, you know. It's just, just let that energy of care and love come in. Um, and then I said, you know, I think it's not going to be all light. You know, there's probably going to be some difficulty that you need to go through. I'll stay with you. But what I said was just keep going. My father was a mover. He liked to, he was a fighter pilot. He believed in just keep moving. Don't stop. You know, so that's what I said. Just keep moving. Don't stop at the, you know, don't stop anywhere. And um, receive this love. And that tape, the chanting tape, was so um, important. And the nurses that came in, and then my family came back in, and I said, it's okay, it's not Buddhist, it's just angel singing, you know. <laughs> and they got it. It was just um, this true love, this, this kindness that we're all trying to learn for ourselves, whether we're having a great time or whether we're having a hard time. You can show up with yourself and others with love. Let's sit for a minute.
may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May we be happy and peaceful of heart. May we be strong and healthy of body. May we experience ease of well-being while living on this earth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.